What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have with me today one of our pediatric anesthesiologists, Dr. Nick D'Alessio. He is an assistant professor of both uh, pediatric anesthesia and otolaryngology here at Johns Hopkins, and he's the director of the Pediatric Difficult Airway Program, and we are going to talk about the approach to the Pediatric Difficult Airway. Nick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jed. Appreciate it. So uh, this is great. Nick is really a um, really an expert on this and has developed our program here and travels all over the country talking about these programs, and so I'm excited to learn and to share uh, your knowledge. Nick, so why don't we first start, I mean, how did you, you obviously are a pediatric anesthesiologist, but how did you develop this interest or specialty in the difficult airway specifically? Well, um, I started riding ambulance when I was in college, actually, and <clears throat> when I was doing that, I was very fascinated with the most important part of the entire management, which was airway management. So when I went to medical school, I started shadowing trauma surgeons, and that's how I got actually interested in anesthesia, was the anesthesiologist always was showing up to the uh, the traumas and participating and had their expertise in airway management. So it's really started at that point. Nice. And then, of course, you've really developed it since then. So we have a program here um, in adults called the DART program. And listeners, we have probably, we've mentioned it before, but um, the difficult airway response team. And so for me, as an intensivist, if I have a patient, let's say, in the ICU and they uh, seem like they're going to have a difficult airway or we've already tried to intubate and it turns out to be difficult, I can, we, we say, we call a DART, right? So I would call the DART team and that would get me a whole bunch of people to help out. Uh, and we also, Nick, I believe you've developed the pediatric version of that. Um, so tell us about that. What is the pediatric DART program and how did it develop? So the pediatric DART program um, developed off of Dr. Mark's adult DART program specifically. <clears throat> what we did was we replaced several of the adult experts on the team with pediatric experts. So um, that's one component. So as an example, the pediatric uh, DART being called, um, we respond to any patient that is being housed within the children's hospital and or any child under the age of 15 in any part of the hospital. Uh, and we and the 
what I mean by we is the different people that are going to respond are a pediatric anesthesiologist. During the day, you'll get a pediatric otolaryngologist. Um, <clears throat> at night, an adult ENT surgeon will respond. But if we need to bring the pediatric ENT on call in, we can do that. We also have a pediatric pharmacist that comes with drug dosing, you know, for helping with drug dosing for certain ages. Um, yeah, so that's the emergency response. What I did for the DART program, specifically what I created, was a pediatric difficult airway consult service. One of the unique attributes of children with difficult airways is that they're often predictable. I'm working on several papers and things that we've been, data we've been collecting, but for the most part, <clears throat> a, child, a child difficult airway scenario is often predicted. So what I've created here is actually an automatic screening system from triage nursing that will pick up children with history of difficult airway or airway pathology that causes an automatic consult to our pediatric anesthesia coordinators. And we will go and put in place airway plans prior to any sort of airway emergency that may happen. So this is any kid admitted to the hospital. They're, they don't need an airway right now. They're just admitted. They meet certain criteria and ding, ding, ding. Uh, the, the notice goes out that we need a consult so that if they ever need an airway, you have a plan. That's exactly right. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of a gradation of... Of this consult, there is a just a routine consult, a child who is admitted maybe with a history of difficult airway with a GI illness. That consult is done within a 24-hour period. It's not urgent. We also have urgent consults. Um, as an example, there's that consult occurs with a direct phone call to the coordinator. And this is a child who potentially has a difficult airway or history of difficult airway who is just not looking great, maybe from a respiratory standpoint, and may need an intervention sooner than later. So as opposed to an emergency where the DART call and the DART team responds. A consult occurs where the team comes within an hour and puts together the plan and assessment. And if this child is deemed a true difficult airway, um, more controlled scenario and situation is therefore undertaken. Gotcha. So obviously a patient, a child who has already been a difficult airway is an easy one, right? That patient is, should be um, predicted to be a difficult airway again, unless some major thing has changed. What other things should clue, you know, let's say a listener is at another hospital, they don't have this automatic kind of algorithm. So what do you, what do you recommend people look for in a presenting kid to say, Hey, I'm concerned this, this might be a difficult airway. Um, so I usually group difficult airway predictors into four large topics. One is airway obstruction, something that's obstructing your ability to put an endotracheal tube in to the airway. That would be maybe macroglossia, things like um, <clears throat> trauma to the face where you can't get into the airway. Um, number two would be a craniofacial abnormality, any sort of genetic syndrome um, that alters the normal anatomy of the head and neck, such as Pierre-Robin sequence with short thyromental uh, distance, <clears throat> Treacher-Collins syndrome, which has you know a short intramaxillary distance and high arch palate, those kinds of things. Uh, third would be a small mouth opening um, that limits the ability to uh, get a standard traditional laryngoscope into the mouth, so alternative intubation devices are usually needed. And then the fourth thing is usually neck pathology, things that will alter the trachea, you know, uh, such as hygromas, neck masses, or even C-collar use. Uh, so <clears throat> from those things, um, uh, I educate our 
pediatric practitioners to kind of identify those and to put in the consults if any of those things are apparent on the patient. Great. All right. So those four categories, obstruction, craniofacial abnormalities, small mouth opening, neck issues, um, are what you're training people to look out for. Um, and then, of course, uh, that's this is all to get a consult. And then the pediatric DART response team is already in place so that, let's say, a patient presents to the emergency room in extremis with a craniofacial abnormality needing an airway, they would just call for the team that would come. Now, you mentioned the makeup of that team, um, as you said, similar to the adult team, except pediatric trained for the most part. The, uh, for the adult team also includes a trauma surgeon. Is there a trauma surgeon at the pediatric darts as well? So the adult trauma surgeon is the one who actually um, responds. <clears throat> so we don't have a specific pediatric trauma surgeon that comes to the ped starts. Great. And I would say, uh, and I assume it's the same with the pediatric darts, with adult darts, the, the wonderful thing about this is not that you have all these providers kind of jockeying over who's going to do the airway. It's that you get a bunch of people to think hard together and however quick that needs to happen, depending on the situation with the patient, but about what would be the best approach. And I've seen these things where the decision is made to go to the operating room to do it there. I've seen it where the decision is made to proceed with the anesthesia, the anesthesia team attempting the airway, but you've got the trauma surgeon or the ENT surgeon there ready to make a cut in the neck if that's what needs to happen next. So it's a very, uh, I will say, as the person often uh, helping the team doing the initial airway attempt on the anesthesia side, it's incredibly uh, nice to have the backup there in the room knowing that, you know, you've got a lot of support depending on how this goes. And I assume it's the same for the PEDS side. Yeah, absolutely. So when we created this PEDS DART team, one of the most important things was to have a multidisciplinary conversation about what the DART team is. And, you know, several subspecialties were always concerned about, okay, this team is going to take our airways. They're just going to be here to take our airways. And there was a lot of barriers to break down before we even kind of implemented said program. Um, and nowadays, it's, in my opinion, it's worked fantastically through the NICU, through the PICU. We, as an example, we come to all alpha traumas in the, in the emergency room. Uh, and the alpha traumas here in the PEDS emergency room are run by the PICU specialists. And we come and we stand in the back. We let them manage that airway. And if their airway becomes difficult, we're there. We're helpful to them. We're not there to take over from them. So I think, personally, we've done a pretty good job of... of collaboration and including without, you know, dominating the whole sub area. Yeah, that, management. absolutely. And that sounds great. So let's talk about um, how you actually manage uh, a difficult airway. So let's start with an anticipated difficult airway. So Nick, maybe you and your resident are talking the night before a case, you're going to be taking a kid to the OR who is a known difficult airway, or maybe has one of these syndromes where you just assume it's going to be a difficult airway. What are the things you're talking about with your resident? What are you telling them to keep in mind? What kind of plan are you coming up with? Well, so I think the most important part of uh, any difficult airway management is understanding the patient's pathology. Um, a difficult airway management <clears throat> is a large topic, and so what we have to really do is narrow it down. So it's easy, obviously, if the patient has been managed already in the operating room, we are just going to, you know, our first plan is to re-execute what happened before. But what I always tell residents is you can't just have one plan for airway management. You need to be set up for multiple plans. So first what I'll do to discuss uh, with the resident is to ask what this patient's pathology is. So I'll give you some examples of um, pathology and then kind of where we go with managing it. So as an example of 
if a resident says to me, well, you know, this patient has had multiple burns to his or her face, uh, which has left the child with small mouth opening, um, I'd like to use a, lyring- a video laryngoscope. I'm going to kind of go crazy because a small mouth opening, the primary problem, obviously, is getting the laryngoscope into the mouth. So <clears throat> what we have to do is we have to specifically look at the patient's pathology and then dictate how the management will go. So small mouth opening, obviously, video laryngoscopy is not usually on the top three things. Blood in the airway, an anticipated bleeding in the airway. Uh, let's say we have a tonsillar bleed. A fiber optic scope is not going to be on the top list as an example. Um, <clears throat> what is often on the list is what meaning what we can often use in most areas, uh, airway, difficult airway scenarios is intubation or fiber optic intubation through a supraglottic airway. So a lot of times um, I discuss this with the residents, how to do this. Um, and a lot of times for teaching purposes, we, we, we manage a lot of difficult airways with that technique. And so that's placing an LMA and then uh, putting a fiber optic bronchoscope through it with a entry, usually exchange catheter, around the fiber. Right. So interestingly, we don't use entries in pediatrics. Okay. <clears throat> so what I've done here is... Um, We've replaced all of our LMAs with AirQ LMAs. Okay. The, the unique attribute of, a unique, of an AirQ LMA is several fold. One, most importantly, is that the internal diameter of the AirQ is very large. Um, so as an example, a 1.0 AirQ LMA is used for a 7 to 17 kilo baby can fit in a 5.0 endotracheal tube throat, which is a fairly large tube, obviously, for that size baby. But most importantly a pilot balloon of a cuffed endotracheal tube. The balloon on the endotracheal tube can fit through the middle of that. Mm. So what we actually do, <clears throat> and I've, I've um, created some videos for this. There's on the McGraw-Hill lecture series by Dr. Najoku. Um, this video is on there. Um, what we do is we place the LMA. We ensure that the LMA uh, is appropriately oxygenating, ventilating for the patient. We then take the cuffed endotracheal tube with a swivel cap adapter and, an, and a fiber optic and place it into the air queue. We inflate the balloon of the endotracheal tube and we hook that swivel cap adapter up to the anesthesia circuit. This way you can oxygenate, ventilate. You can also provide sevoflurane, which um, <clears throat> will keep the patient spontaneously breathing and anesthetized while doing the procedure. And then we place the fiber optic into the airway. Once we're into... Uh, um, into the airway with the fiber optic, we deflate the endotracheal tube cuff, place the endotracheal tube over the fiber optic, and as we pull the fiber optic out, we can confirm the placement of the endotracheal tube is already there. We pull out the LMA, we pull out the um, uh, uh, fiber optic, and <clears throat> rehook it back up to the circuit, and it works. So instead of doing three system mm-hmm. with an entry can do it just with two. Gotcha. And you can do that because your tube will fit in that element. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So that's great. So you cut out the entry part. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So that's a nice technique. And, and as long as you can fit the LMA in the mouth, you can do it. You don't. So that will work to some extent for small mouth opening as long as you can get the LMA in. Correct. Okay. Um, other things uh, that you think about or other kind of um, pathology that you might see that you might address differently? Um, <clears throat> well, one of the things I like to mention when I give my talks is about video laryngoscopy. 
there's a lot of different video laryngoscopes that are out there and um, with different attributes associated with each of them. Uh, Glidescope is an example. It's a very sharp angled video laryngoscope. A C-Mac, Stort C-Mac D-Blade actually is a very short intramax, uh, intra, a thyromental distance um, uh, the, the, to restate that, it would be the distance from the handle to the tip of the l- laryngoscope is, is shorter than a standard um, C-Mac Mac 4 blade, as an example. So each one of these video laryngoscope blades has a very unique um, beneficial a- attribute that can be used. And again, even in your adult patients and your peds patients, you should look at these video laryngoscopes and assess their benefit. As an example, I had a morbidly obese teenage teenager uh, who had a very short thyromental distance. The best blade for that child in a video laryngoscope was a Stort C-Mac D-blade mm. because it was so large and that angle was so sharp, it could hold the tongue out of the, the visual airway, the, the visual line yeah. and get the tube in. So I like to keep, I just want to emphasize to keep that in mind that your video laryngoscopes there are unique attributes within that subtopic. Yeah. So, so not all not all video laryngoscopes are the same. That's right. And you want to know which ones are going to be beneficial for which pathology. That's right. Great. All right. So uh, you might have uh, a very short thyromental distance and want to think about a D-blade. Um, so video laryngoscopes can be helpful. As you said, not really uh, in small mouth opening. You may not be able to get the video laryngoscope in the mouth, so that may not help you there. Uh, we talked about intubating through an LMA when you do have limited mouth opening. Um, other things, what about a, a patient who, you know, has a normal mouth opening, but just very strange anatomy, either distorted by, let's say an external tumor or just distorted by a craniofacial abnormality. So <clears throat> if you're talking about distortion where maybe you can't get a superglottic airway into the patient, um, the, the key is to actually anesthetize these patients by keeping them spontaneously ventilating. Unfortunately, the options of doing an awake fiber optic in children is almost impossible. I can't talk my six-year-olds into sitting still and cleaning out their ears with a Q-tip. I can't imagine doing that with a a fiber optic scope in their airways. Absolutely. um, We focus a lot of our anesthetic practice on maintaining spontaneous ventilation. Now, one of the unique attributes of children is propofol infusions at even very high doses do not cause apnea in smaller aged children. So we do a combination of dexmedetomidine and propofol infusions. And, and, and the key is when you're starting these infusions is to be patient. Like I said, most children are predictable uh, when difficult airways are occurring. So we have the time to anesthetize them appropriately uh, under a controlled situation. Um, we oftentimes like to bring these children to the operating room if there are emergencies outside. So we can utilize some of our other medications, specifically inhalational anesthesia, to keep them spontaneously ventilating. So what we tend to do is if we do have a patient with anatomy that is you know, distorting, uh, that has such severe distortion that a supraglottic area can't be used, the ideal is to maintain spontaneous ventilation and do the flexible fiber optics. Um, through that situation. So essentially in a sleep fiber, but asleep with spontaneous ventilation. That's correct. And so ways to do that are, if you're in the operating room, are one, to anesthetize with a mask and SIVO, and then uh, do the intubation after they're asleep but still breathing. Two, uh, if you have an IV, 
you can do propofol and dexmedetomidine, uh, dexmedetomidine also known as Presidex. And so in general, <clears throat> what dosing are you using for, if you're going to put them on propofol and, and Presidex, what kind of dosing are you going to do? So um, just so if I do have a child who has severe um, airway pathology where I think ventilation is going to be a problem, I will mandate that they get an IV before I bring them to the operating room, just as a side note. Okay. I'll mask them down with SIVO if I believe mask ventilation is not going to be a problem. A lot of times masking is easy in many children. Um, again, that depends on their pathology. But So for dosing for Presidex, we, you, know, you want to wait a good um, 15 minutes to give the initial bolus of one mic per kilo. Usually, I start my Presidex infusion at 0.5 mics per kilo per hour. Um, propofol depends on the age. So the older the child, the smaller the initial dose would be. So as an example, what I'll do is I'll, um, if it's a teenager, I would start at maybe even 50 to 100 mics per kilo per minute. And then uh, as I get younger, I'll increase that dose. So, um, you know, small infants, I would even consider starting at 200 mics per kilo. Um, <clears throat> as that's without a bolus. That's just starting an infusion. Correct. Okay. So I bolus. I would bolus the Presidex and maintain the two infusions of start the two infusions pretty much immediately as I'm giving the Presidex. Obviously, you have to worry about um, bradycardia and um, mo- most importantly bradycardia with the Presidex yep. uh, induction. So you have to give that that full 15 minute induction time. Meaning, give it give that one mic per kilo over 15, 15 minutes. minutes. That's yeah. correct. You're not, pu- you're not pushing this all in no. one second. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Um, the good part about doing this in the operating room is you can supplement your time with a little bit of SIVO. In that pre-oxygenation period, you can give a little bit of SIVO-fluorine. Obviously, in the really small patients, you want to be careful. It can cause apnea again. Um, but titrating in these three medications at this time to ensure that the patient is uh, well and appropriately anesthetized to manipulate their airway but also still spontaneously ventilating, you know, speaks volume. So um, the emphasis on patience is is important. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned that one of the key things here is, of course, knowing if you can mask ventilate the patient. You said most kids tend to be relatively easy to mask ventilate. What do you think of as predictors of a difficult mask ventilation in kids? So <clears throat> most of our mask ventilation issues come with Obesity, like as in uh, adults. However, children tend to have a higher airway patency. Um, their muscular tone to their genioglossus muscles is, is higher in, in children than adults. So uh, obesity tends not to be too big of an issue, but it still is something we see, especially in our older teenagers. The primary problem with mask ventilation, the primary pathology, I should say, that we see are patients with large... Um, obstructing masses, either macroglossia, some of our Downs patients have mm-hmm. uh, very large tongues, masses in the, in the mouth, um, <clears throat> neck uh, pathology like hygromas or um, th- th- those kinds of things. But for the most part, ma- mask ventilation in pediat- difficult mask ventilation in pediatrics is not very common. Okay. Now, let's say you let's say you have a kid with just a huge tongue or a huge mass, and you think mm, this patient may be difficult to mask ventilate. Does that affect your uh, induction plan, like the one we just talked about, or would you still use a mix of SIVO and propofol and, and Presidex to try to get them anesthetized but still breathing? So I would try to keep them anesthetized and still breathing. I can give you an example of a case. Sure, actually. that'd be I took great. Care of a patient who was um, an eight-year-old ADHD. 
um, Downs patient with macroglossia where his tongue was protruding out of his mouth. So he was very strong, um, and we couldn't get an IV in him. So what we had to do was give him intramuscular ket ketamine and atropine. Obviously, Downs patients on induction of anesthesia can become bradycardic, so you have to do this very carefully. Um, nowadays, you can also give intranasal dexmedetomidine um, at a roughly two to three mics per kilo into their nose. Mm. Uh, so, again, you have to be careful on the bradycardia with that dose. But these two medications, ketamine intramuscularly and dex, can really get you to a point where the child is sedated um, and um, able to tolerate an IV placement once you get to the OR. At that point, we did a little um, uh, pre-oxygenation and used some local anesthetic in his nose to do a fiber optic through his nose while he spontaneously ventilated. Then got his IV in, started the infusions, and went from there. Okay. So let's say that that same kid had not been diff – you had an IV. Mm -hmm. Would you have done, you know, kind of same thing, propofol, desmetatomidine – get them deep enough to be able to manipulate the airway but still breathing. Correct. And, let you know, obviously that's a little bit of a moving target depending on the kid, right? Some, I'm sure, will get apneic at some point where another might not. So do you titrate that infusion pretty slowly and carefully, mm -hmm. watching for apnea? And then and then how do you – what makes you think, okay, they're, they're good to go, I'm ready to do – to start manipulating the airway? Mm -hmm. So usually it has to do with their um, uh, respiratory pattern. So as an example, I do a lot of anesthesia for otolaryngology. We do a lot of spontaneously breathing, rigid laryngoscopy, rigid scoping. Um, so the way I tell is they're getting to a point where they're still breathing, but their tidal volumes are going down. Okay. And um, they may be breathing at about a th two, three mic per kilo tidal mm -hmm. volume. So what that means is they still have um, the spontaneously ventilating drive, However, they're getting to that point where they're getting close to being apneic. Remember, laryngoscopy is extremely stimulating. Mm -hmm. So what I oftentimes have is if once they put the laryngoscope into the mouth or if I place an LMA into the mouth, as an example, that stimulation will get them to bring that tidal volume back up. But they're at a point that's pretty, um, usually pretty comfortable and can tolerate it. If you know, I misjudged that. Small doses of propofol can help. Small doses of ADEX, increasing your infusion, can help. Another four mics of uh, Presidex um, bolus can sometimes help. Again, it takes a little time for that to kick in. but Another four mics Just total? CCs, yeah. I start not, off not once. per kilo. Correct. There's yeah. four, it's four mics usually per CC, the, the dilution we use. Gotcha. Sorry. So another so maybe one another CC, CC or four right, micrograms exactly. total. Gotcha. Correct. Um, or I can titrate in a little bit of the inhalational anesthesia. I can up my gas and, and kind of help that. Okay. What about, so you mentioned ketamine for the patient who you, who you couldn't even get the IV. And we use, uh, in adults, I think of ketamine as a great option because it will keep people breathing. You know, now in kids, as you said, especially really small ones, propofol often will still maintain spontaneous ventilation. So you may not need to worry about it as much. If you were really worried, you know, that that patient with that, you know, they're, they're barely able to spontaneously ventilate a baseline with this big mass in their mouth or whatever it is, would you maybe think about ketamine instead of propofol or along with your propofol or, or not as much of an issue? In the so case? usually what I do, so I can give you another example. I once took care of a patient when I was a fellow with a very large uh, hygroma on her, th on her neck, and she was, oh, I don't know, she was less than a year old. 
So what we did was we brought her into the operating room. She's starting in respiratory distress. So we brought her into the operating room. And what we did was we gave her Presidex. We usually, I tend to use a higher dose of Presidex and a very lower dose of propofol. And what we did in that case is we started the titration. We started at 50 mics per kilo, I remember, propofol. And we just went up 25 mics, waited, tested, moved the baby a little bit. If she kind of still moved around, we'll wait up at another 25 mm-hmm. minutes. The induction process took over 15 minutes just to get her to a point where we could use a fiber optic into her airway. Uh, her hygroma distorted her neck so drastically that surgical airways were not appropriate. We couldn't get a direct visualization. So we had to get this right the first time. Yeah. So again, patients, uh, again, focus on the spontaneous ventilation and slow titration is really what we focus on. Great. All right. So we've talked about the anticipated difficult airway and how you would approach it and, and the planning for it. What about the unanticipated difficult airway? So either you've got a patient who, for all you can tell, they should be easy and regular standard airway. You know, you've got your first year resident going to do it, and then uh, it's not, and you and you run into trouble. And maybe it's you know a, you can't intubate, can't ventilate situation. Is it the same algorithm as we think of for adults, or how do you approach the unanticipated difficult airway? Yeah, so it is the same um, algorithm as in adults. We have yet to really create a pediatric-specific algorithm. One of the things that the um, multi-institutional group that um, I helped collaborate with that's housed out of the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia is uh, they focus on quantity or number of attempts, initial attempts, really uh, should be limited to two or fewer on the initial attempt. Um, If a um, airway practitioner has gotten to two, they need to call for help. Mm-hmm. And specifically in pediatrics, it's important to try to get a pediatric provider there to help. If we're having a difficult uh, mask ventilation, again, go down the pathway of adjuncts to, to ventilation, an oral airway. Um, <clears throat> the difference in pediatrics versus adults in ventilation is we have four, five, six different airway sizes as opposed to like a very large one in adults and a less large one in adults. So so you have to also consider that if there is an airway obstruction due to a tongue or a mass and you believe an oral airway is beneficial, consider that your size is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So I do mention that. Um, In intubation, again, you have a lot of different types of um, laryngoscopes and options and sizes for that. Um, but what I like to antis- what I like to emphasize for an unanticipated airway is the use of a superglottic airway. Many people do not believe that a superglottic airway can be a used in children. Oftentimes, they don't even think about it. We've had several situations where a superglottic airway was placed much later than it should. Mm-hmm. So, if I was going to emphasize anything to you, it would be: do not forget about your superglottic airways. They are life saving and they can be extremely beneficial. What I've done in this hospital is replaced all of the supraglottic airways in the emergency situations with these air cues. Mm-hmm. So what happens is if they do have a cannot ventilate intubate scenario, they throw in a supraglottic airway. We try to get them to the operating room for fiber optic intubation. Um, after I gave one of my courses, this uh, nurse practitioner in the NICU actually had this scenario of a Piero Man baby who self-extubated in the middle of the night, and she had the the foresight and the training to put in a superglottic airway and that child was able to get to the operating room to secure airway. It was, it was an excellent, um, uh, management. So if I was going to tell you anything, that would be what it is. Well, that's great. Yeah. And really important lesson. So, you know, I think it sounds like obviously the first thing you do if you can't intubate is 
try to mask ventilate. And if you can, either alone or with a appropriate adjunct, as you've said, a little more complicated there than with adults. You, you have to pick the right size and maybe try more than one size. Um, and if that works great, then you're not in the emergency pathway. But if you cannot ventilate and you cannot intubate, then the first thing you want to do is a supraglottic airway, um, which often will work. And it may even be able to intubate through that, and, and then you're done. But let's say that you put in the supraglottic airway, and that doesn't work. So in adults, often at this point, we might be thinking about trying a fiber or video laryngoscope, but we're also starting to get ready for a surgical airway in case we get to that point. Is it the same in kids? Do you, would you want, as an anesthesiologist, to be doing a surgical airway in a kid? So a lot of the literature out there, there's the age, the exact age uh, is not, um, there's some discrepancies on the exact age with which you would do a surgical airway, meaning um, a tracheostomy. But um, what I usually tell um, our trainees is that in children under the age of 10, what you want to focus on is actual needle cricothyrotomy. Um, You use a fairly large needle, 16 gauge, 18 gauge, and there are different techniques with which we can speak to, um, but you want to focus on using um, uh, or doing needle cricothyrotomy and not surgical airways. And why is that, Nick? What, what's the <clears throat> downside to a, a surgical crike? So it has mostly to do with the anatomy um, of a child. Number one, it's very difficult to discern the cricothyroid membrane in an infant. They have a lot of fat rolls and... Um, it's very hard to find that membrane, number one. Number two, uh, a lot of their major vessels overlie the anterior portion of their airway. Um, so what I have done, and I actually I did publish a um, report in ANA on case reports, that if you do have access to an ultrasound, doing an ultrasound-guided needle cricothyronomy can be beneficial in this scenario. Uh, ultrasounds are becoming a lot more prevalent throughout the hospital. So if you do get to a point where you need to do a needle cricothyronomy, consider using an ultrasound to avoid those large uh, you know, vessels and, and optimize the success of the technique. So you're going to put a needle in. Um, are we talking, when you say large size, are we talking about like a 14 gauge? Yeah, 16, 16, okay. 18 gauge. Depending on the, it all depends on the age sure. of the child, obviously. But and then you're ventilating through that needle. That's right. So you can use, there's a lot of different ways to create your own jet ventilator. As an example, if you don't have one uh, in an emergency room, you can use the green tubing of an oxygen mask to hook up to a three-way stopcock. And the stopcock can hook up, because it's an angiocath, can hook right up to that. Mm-hmm. And you can use it as a flute by putting your f- finger over it and hooking that oxygen tubing up to just wall oxygen. The wall oxygen's at 50 PSI. That's sufficient enough to jet ventilate patients. Here in this hospital, we have specific um, jet ventilators, ventilators, but um, you can't do that. Right. Okay. So that, for young enough patients, maybe under 10 or or sort of, you know, wherever that cutoff falls, may be better to do that. And and we'll just say, obviously, people should, you know, consult their hospital algorithm and make sure they are doing what, what is approved at their hospital. But that's good to know, something to keep in mind. Uh, you wouldn't want to necessarily just go for a crike in a young kid, um, at least an open surgical crike. And so you've got this needle in. You're maybe able to jet ventilate or, or you know, tide yourself over a little bit while you, of course, call for a more definitive airway, meaning the pediatric ENT surgeon is going to come and do a formal trach or whatever it takes. Correct. Okay. Uh, great. So let's talk about another scenario. So what happens when you've got a kid and you are able to mask, but you, you're maybe struggling to intubate, and um, you end up uh, with a little kid and a stomach full of air? 
how does that affect the kid? Does that have any impact on the saturation of that kid in, in real time? And if so, how do you handle it? So I believe the scenario you're mentioning is mainly in neonates. So when we're mask ventilating neonates, sometimes our trainees can be overly aggressive on mask ventilation, in which case we have an insufflation of the stomach. And an insufflating a, a neonate with a lot of air into the stomach can decrease our functional residual capacity of our lungs and also make it more difficult to actually oxygenate these infants. So um, if the patient is appropriately NPO, you can push on the stomach to try to deflate some of that. If you are having difficulty masking um, and you're worried about desaturation and it has become an emergency, you can push on the stomach to try to back out some of the gas. Again, you're going to be worried about stomach contents coming out. Um, so if you have more of a controlled situation, you can pass an OG tube down the patient to um, desufflate the stomach mm -hmm. um, to get that air out and then pull that OG tube out as fast as possible to go back to ventilation. The best scenario, obviously, is to not get the, into that situation to begin with and just be you know, careful on how you're initially masking those children. Okay, but that's really interesting and significant. We don't really think of that in adults. I mean, we certainly think about insufflating the stomach as something we want to avoid mostly for the increased risk of aspiration, but we don't think of it as leading to significant desaturation or to you know significant difficulty with masking. But in a kid, that sounds like it, or especially in neonates, sounds like it can be a significant issue, so you want to be very, very careful. Um, let's talk about a kid with strider. How do you approach a kid with strider, uh, you know, who, uh, obviously, if it's a kid with strider who is rapidly desaturating, that's going to be a, you're going to call a, a dart, a pediatric dart, and you're going to, you know, figure out with the team how best to get an airway in that kid. But what about a kid with strider who you're worried about, but, you know, they're okay for the moment? So what we usually have to do is figure out why the patient is having strider. And a lot of times in small children, especially on your board exams, you want to think of aspiration of a foreign body. So, um, again, you know, this may be boring, but the theme is to try to keep them spontaneously ventilating. Sure. You, if you can avoid positive pressure to push something down into their airway, um, that is the optimal scenario to bring them to the operating room as quickly as possible. Um, we don't normally see, or we haven't seen epiglottitis. Um, there is a resurgence due to some patients not being vaccinated these days. But again, I think um, at this, at my institution here, we have not seen any. So, uh, again, it is the benefit of keeping the child spontaneously breathing and bring him to the operating room for direct visualization for laryngoscopy is what we really strive for for Strider's patients. To prepare for them, what you want to do is have multiple size endotracheal tubes available. Strider can become from inhalational burn injury. Um, anaphylaxis is also something you want to consider. So you want to be prepared for that scenario where the airway is closing rapidly. And, and, and that's easy enough to do is to have multiple size endotracheal tubes available for when you're securing the airway. Great. And so when we talk about small endotracheal tubes, and I haven't done PEDS since residency, but I remember there being some very small tubes, uh, you know, what do you, is it true that there's a, a tube size beyond which you cannot any longer put a fiber optic bronchoscope through it? And what is that size? So the smallest fiber optic that we have is a 2.2 millimeter scope. So really you need, um, that scope can go down a 3.0 uh, endotracheal tube. I'm not 100% sure how effective it goes down at 2.5. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that it's really tight and yeah. almost impossible. So I, I know we use 2.2 scopes on um, uh, 
3.0 endotracheal tubes. Again, it's tight. You want to be sure that the lubrication is appropriate with silicone, but I would say 3.0. Okay. So beyond that, you can't use the fiber. That takes that out. Are there really small um, video laryngoscopes? I mean, how, how small a kid can you use a video laryngoscope in? So you can use a video laryngoscope in, in, in any child, really. Um, the, there is a Miller Zero CMAC scope. Um, they do make uh, Glidescope blades that are uh, small. You can use them in any age group. I don't know if there's a, a an age cutoff. To be honest with you, I okay. think that if you if you think you can if the if you think the video laryngoscope is going to be beneficial on those smaller blades, you know it's worth trying. Okay, great, Nick. This has been so helpful. Is there anything you think is really key? Anything you you know emphasize with folks when you're talking about this that we haven't gone over? Um. I just really wanted to emphasize the things I kind of mentioned already, Please. which is, you know, one, be patient when you're anesthetizing patients, children with difficult airway. To ensure good spontaneous ventilation, you know, you can usually uh, do that because they're predictable. These difficult airways are predictable. So be patient on your induction process, number one. Number two, um, don't forget about the supraglottic airway when it comes to emergencies, when it comes to um, <clears throat> difficult airway management. They can be really life-saving. Learn how to use them. Learn how to place them. There's so many different types, certain certain ones with certain benefits. Um, and so definitely learn how to use those. Uh, number three, be able to recognize these difficult airway scenarios and put the plans in place before the emergencies, the airway emergencies become available. With our consult service, we write it out, the plans on a piece of paper for the nursing and everyone to see. We put it in the problem list in Epic so everyone can see it. And we write a formal consult note. We make it available and we have the resources that we believe will be successful in securing that airway, such as a supraglottic airway, placed at the bedside of these patients. Mm-hmm. Be prepared take that time to be prepared can also save kids life absolutely i think those are amazing points and thank you so much for making them and for coming on the show thank you so much for having me all right that was fantastic hopefully it was helpful to folks out there interested in pediatrics and the difficult airways if you have comments please go to the website accrac.com that's accrac.com leave a comment everybody can learn from what you have to share you can of course on the website also see all the other episodes and all the other comments that people have left if you are a fan of the show please go to itunes and leave a comment and a rating it helps others find the show and if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. It really makes a big difference, and we really appreciate your support, even if it's just a dollar or two. Also, for those of you who are already patrons, a huge thank you, as well as a big shout-out and thank you to Brian Park for the fantastic outlines that he makes for the episodes. You'll see them popping up little by little on the show notes at the website. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. D'Alessio, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.